Welcome to the podcast, Career Stories from the Field. I am Penny Strutton, a business psychologist and career coach, and for the last 10 years, I've worked with hundreds of people and helped them find a job or career that fulfills them. Very rarely do we see a straightforward career pathway. This podcast will showcase a variety of careers and highlight the career pathways people have taken to achieve their current position. It is the interesting routes, choices, opportunities and challenges that I will be exploring to showcase how different people have navigated their career. I'm hoping to help young people and career changers join the dots between subjects at school, tertiary education and job experience and give more people confidence to embrace opportunities that take them closer to a fulfilling career. This week, I'm talking to Gareth Emmons. Gareth spent the first 10 years as a police officer in London before transferring his skills to a world and human resources. He now holds the position of Head of People and Culture for Wellbeing Software, a company that develops and maintains software for the health sector. Gareth's story shines a light on what skills and strengths you need to transition into a world of human resources and people development. So a very big warm welcome to Gareth Emmons on the first episode of our second series on the podcast Career Stories from the Field. Welcome, Gareth. Thank you, Pam. So nice for you to join me today. Uh, looking forward to hearing all about your very interesting career. So why don't you start by telling us what you do, what your job title is, and give us a bit of a, a description of your day-to-day -day activities. Alrighty. So I am the people and culture manager for a company called Wellbeing Software, which is based up in Mansfield in Nottinghamshire. And the title of the business doesn't actually define what we do. And there's a very funny story about how I ended up working here, but um, and we'll maybe get into that in a while. But what we do is we provide software which supports the management of patients through NHS departments. So we specialise in uh, radiology, maternity, pathology and oncology. And what that software does is it manages the process from when a clinician says, Penny, we'd like you to have an X-ray or a CTI scan or an MRI right through the actual clinic process, booking the appointments, getting the images, processing the images and sending those back to the clinician. And then what we do is we run some tools over it, which helps them make a far more effective diagnosis. So I like to summarize it up in that we, we kind of help people, people live longer, healthier lives by enabling the clinician to make more effective diagnoses. It's the one thing that really interested me in the role because, you know, I got this phone call from a lady who started talking to me about wellbeing software. And for the first 10 minutes of the conversation, I was absolutely convinced she was trying to sell me a yoga app or well-being or mental health or something in that direction. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it was only after she'd said, so Nick could, said you could help us with this project, that I realised that actually this was one of Nick Elliott's customers that he'd recommended I could help them with a project on. So I'm then frantically Googling well-being software and looking at this website, which talked about hacks and rears and I had no idea what the hell that was <laughs> so we're about to go through a global rebranding process and I better give you a bit of history of how I came here so I originally came here to do a four-week contract uh, which was ideally going to be a quick four week, weeks of restructuring work and then I would walk away 
Uh, and at the time, the business had been the business has been around for around about 20 years or so and is market leader in the radiology market, quite strong in the maternity market. But it had been bought by a company called Citadel Group, which are an Australian business. And this was their first acquisition outside of Australia. And what Citadel sell is a similar set of software products, but specializing in pathology and oncology. And obviously what they saw was the strength of the business in the UK market as being a way of leveraging our contact base to get in and sell those products into the wider NHS and vice versa. They don't sell radiology or maternity systems in Australia. So it's very much a case of this is a great fit for us. That fits for us. And at the same time, the head of people and culture in, the, the, in Australia was looking for uh, a more strategic HR model. So I was basically asked if I'd apply for the job and got it. Amazing. Yeah. So, so tell us a bit more about what the, the head of people and culture actually does. So it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a multitude of things. It's a small business. We have 190 employees in the UK. So there's still quite a lot of operational HR involved. I have a team of two people that support me, neither of whom had ever worked in an HR function before and didn't really know what HR is or what it does. So it's a mixture between kind of feeding into the HR strategy for the global business. And then my role really is deploying that and making it live in the UK business. So it's a mixture of strategy role, bit of hybrid and very much about operational delivery. Uh, and it's a classic generalist role in that I spend a lot of my time coaching managers in how to get the best out of their people. It could be something as very fundamental as this person's phoned in sick. What do I do? Right through to looking at how we provide them with the tools and techniques and the coaching to enable them to manage their people more effectively and in a consistent manner across the across the whole business. It's a very full job. And also, additionally to that, we started from scratch on the pathology side. So uh, within the space of six months, we'd recruited three people initially to start work on the pathology product, look at what needed to be done for the UK market. We then started selling it. We were hugely successful. We've won five major contracts in six months. And therefore, we went on a mad recruiting spree. So that team has grown from three people to 23 in the space of six months. That's massive. It's massive. And I'm hugely proud of what we've done. And we're nowhere near finished yet. So it's very, very exciting. But with that comes some of the challenges in terms of culture, let alone a nine or 11 hour time difference, depending on whether we're on GMT or BST. So that's quite interesting. I will quite often have my one-to-ones with my boss at 7 a.m. UK time because that's her evening. That's so early. I, I, yeah, I quite often get my to-do list. I work my way through it and then by the morning it's done and in her inbox. So it actually works really well. I imagine. So it's interesting, the, the whole world of HR. So often when I've spoken to people that are coming into their career, you know, new to their career or people that aren't really fully aware about HR. They've got the perception that HR is very much about being a very people person, that, you know, you're there for the, yeah. the, the employees. But actually, it's you need to be a lot tougher than that, don't you, in HR? It's broader. Tell us a bit more about that. I, I would often describe it as you, you play kind of the referee role between what the business is trying to achieve and making sure that's right for our people. 
So sometimes you're brushing up against CEOs, boards of directors that have got very, very fixed ideas of what they want to do. And my job really is to ensure that they're totally aware of the impact on our colleagues and ourselves and our employer brand that that might have. So sometimes you get short-term decisions where, you know, there might be financial pressure, for example. Uh, and certainly, you know, in the 30 odd years I've been around, I went through this in the, the financial crisis of 2008-9, where survival was the number one thing. You know, the first, first rule of business is to still be in business. And there were a lot of painful decisions that had to be made. But equally, you know, quite often you're battling with a, a CFO or a finance director saying, well, you know, employees are our greatest cost. So that's where the biggest savings are going to be made. Well, yes, they are. And sometimes it's a bit like playing poker because short term financial pressures don't necessarily equate to good decisions about how you invest, train and grow the, the skills of your workforce. And if you haven't got those skills, then when any form of recovery kicks in, your ability to respond to that very quickly and, and crank up business in a very, very structured manner, very quick, depends on you having the skills and abilities of your workforce. And if you've just made everybody redundant, how are you going to deliver for your customers? So uh, one of the key things I'd always say to people about HR is, yes, there's a lot of stuff about people involved in it. But the primary function of HR and people team is about ensuring that the business delivers its very best in terms of its financial performance through its people. And it's about how do you harness the kind of collective strength of the skills, knowledge and abilities of the people that you've actually got in delivering to your customers. Because certainly in a knowledge-based business like ours, where the only assets we have are our people, then you need to treat them properly because if they leave you, they've probably lost some very key knowledge that you might need for the future. And if you're not very good at knowledge sharing or getting that information out of people's heads and forming a very collaborative function, you're absolutely putting your whole future in jeopardy, really. Absolutely. It can absolutely have a lot of the nasty bits in life. Uh, I mean, people often will say, oh, you work in HR. How do you sleep at night? Well, I sleep really, really simply. I, I sleep very, very clearly. You know, the answer to that question is, we're not in America. It's not like we're the police. If you watch a lot of American drama, oh, you know, the fear that HR is this, HR's that, managers don't do anything and HR do all the nasty stuff. That's not what we're about in the UK. The UK is all about coaching managers in how they manage their people. Uh, and what I often say, Penny, is that our role is to apply a process to a situation that an employee has created entirely of their own volition because most of the time they'll have done something that they shouldn't have done or they haven't done something which they should have done. And what we do is apply a process and guide a manager in how to apply that process in a fair and consistent manner that gets the right outcome. That's a great summary. Thank yeah. you. Probably one of the things I'd say that, you know, if you're talking about the key skills of what it involves to be in HR, actually maturity and common sense are two of the most valuable things. People often go to university, they do an HR degree, they then think that, great, I'll progress my HR career and I'm in an HR business partner role. What they sometimes lack is the actual practical experience of what is involved in recruiting, managing, 
developing and supporting a whole team of people. And quite often you'll find that the people who make amazing HR people are ones that have spent a fair bit of time in the operation, especially in places like call centers where they've had to cope with quite a lot of employee casework because it makes them very rounded and very practical and very experienced in how to actually deal with those situations. And, and it's not about being disrespectful to somebody, but if you're 22 years old and you've never managed a team of people and a manager's coming to you for advice about how to manage a difficult situation with an employee, how can you give them really good practical advice if you've never actually done it yourself? 100%. And I imagine another key skill is about having the confidence to be quite straight talking whilst being empathetic. Absolutely. There's a lot of fluff around HR and a lot of, I won't call it nonsense because that's disrespectful to the profession, but there's a lot of fluff around and really a discouragement that you shouldn't talk bluntly with people. And I completely fundamentally disagree with that. You know, you and I have known each other a good long while. And one of the things we share in common is we're very blunt speaking. And, we and definitely found, are. <laughs> yeah, and certainly in my years in HR, one of the things I've really found is that blunt speaking helps people understand really clearly what an issue is and what they need to do to fix it. You know, sometimes you'll hear people talk about a performance management problem and they'll say, oh, you know, we need to talk about a strategy which enables us to get the best out of you. Well, that's okay. But if that employee is under some form of illusion that they, they are actually not delivering and if it doesn't change, they're going to get fired, that's not really helpful to them. I've certainly found that being very straight with people and just making sure they're really clear about what you've said to them, that actually this is a problem and if it doesn't change, you are likely to get dismissed, could cause a problem for them. I think, you know, being very clear and direct actually is a better way to do it. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me, but... Well, I think, it, you know, if people can clearly understand where they stand and the options available to them, then everybody's in a better position to progress successfully, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a bit about what you enjoy the most in your role. I'll flip that the other way and tell you the things I don't enjoy first. So, you know, contrary to popular belief, uh, nobody in an HR role actually enjoys doing any form of disciplinary hearing or disciplinary investigation or grievance. We do not enjoy that because they are not positive outcomes. You know, that's about doing the 2% bit of HR that is very negative. The bits that I really enjoy are, I like learning about people. I like understanding what makes them tick. And then I like understanding what we can do to get the best out of them. So my natural approach is always, what's the situation I've got and can I approach it with a coaching outcome? Because, you know, people make mistakes. That's absolutely fine. The important thing is that you help them to understand what went wrong and that it must never go wrong again. And the bits that I really, really enjoy are recruiting really, really talented people and watching them grow their career. And, and I've been really lucky in my time in HR that, you know, I've hired people in into more junior roles, done a lot of coaching with them, but also, you know, help them really harness their own strengths and watch them progress their own careers. There's really satisfying seeing someone's LinkedIn posting about 
how they've gone from being an HR administrator to an HR advisor to a business partner to an HR manager. I love that. I really do. And that really, really, you can hear it in my voice. Absolutely. I get very impassioned about that. And I, I love seeing that happen. I really do. Oh, massively fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it's something as simple as helping someone believe in themselves where, you know, they've not got a massive amount of self-confidence and then you help them unpick it and go, look, people talk about complex stuff and they talk about policy and they talk about the risks of getting it wrong. But actually, quite a lot of the things we do in HR can be dealt with on a really simple basis, which is if this was happening to you, how would you like to be dealt with? And if you keep that in your mind, generally you'll deal with it in a really, really good manner. Fantastic. So you haven't always been in HR. We know that. I haven't always been in HR. HR is actually my third career. Wow. So take us back. Start at the beginning. <laughs> I will go back many moons. So right back when I was a 16 year old, uh, I was I am so old that I went to grammar school and I was quite a studious chap. I was quite quite a loner actually at school. I liked my own company and I, you know, I would spend my lunch times doing my homework. I was very driven in the, you know, when I got home, I would always do my homework straight away, get it out of the way, and then I'd relax. My brothers were quite the opposite. So my middle brother is somebody who always left his homework till 10 o'clock at night. We're just very different people, but and I ended up being very interested in the world of computers, actually, because this is way back in the early 80s when computers were just starting to become more used and known in society. And my school was one of the first that did computer studies as an O-level topic. So I did that. Quite interesting. Never realised that, you know, way back in 1982 that they would be the whole world that we now inhabit is computerised, of course. But somewhere, somewhere in my mind, I thought I'd like to be a computer programmer. So that's the kind of path that I set out on. And then I was very lucky and managed to go to Boots head office in Nottingham and do some work experience in their computer department and realised actually that was definitely not for me. <laughs> that wasn't the kind of role actually that I was looking for. And the first job I ever took, bizarrely, um, again, 1984, when I left college, uh, I did a business of finance, um, HND. Um, there was a big recession on, so I took the first job that I managed to secure, which was actually processing P45s in a tax office. <laughs> Great. So you started some HR early days. Kind of, but um, I guess you know, when you reflect back on your career and you look at what skills did I pick up then? Well, dealing with irate people whose tax is wrong because that's affecting their take-home pay on a front counter in a tax office is quite good training for an 18-year-old to understand how to manage quite conflictual situations and how to diffuse them with a smile. And I'm very sorry to hear that. Let me find out and see what I can do for you. Very good training. Certainly something I've used for the last 30 years, without a doubt, that are smiling. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Let me see what I can do to help you. That's definitely a good skill to, and, and one that's lasted me definitely throughout. Uh, from then on, you know, I went into a, a role which was somewhat different, shall we say. Uh, and I spent 12 years as a police officer in the Metropolitan Police. Wow. Yeah. Um, so what did you do there? 
I, in summary, of course. Yeah, we won't go into too many specifics, but uh, I spent my first two years, like every other probationer, walking the streets of Hounslow, dealing with all kinds of day-to-day -day routine policing, including nicking people, dealing with shoplifters, um, burglars, all sorts of different things, dealing with road traffic crashes, taking statements. Uh, and those were some of the skills that you kind of developed at the time in terms of asking questions, interviewing witnesses, criminals and things. That actually, when you end up in an HR career, you realise that those are the skills that you learn very much in, those, in that profession that have lasted well into the future. You just use them in a different way. Yeah. Uh, and I did 12 years in London and I did quite a lot of specialist stuff and stuff we don't particularly talk about, which was really good. But I got to a period in my career where I thought, OK, what are my options? The only options available to me really was stay doing what I was doing. And I'd kind of realised I'd plateaued a bit and got a bit bored with it. Uh, and started losing probably respect for the people that were actually my customers because when you start seeing your customers as a pain in the arse probably not the best place to carry on your career time to leave time to leave and the only other option really was to get promoted and at that time you know the role of a sergeant in the Met spending three days a week booking prisoners into a custody suite so it didn't really appeal to me uh, and this tied in with the millennium. So, you know, we're going back 22 years now where new millennium, time for a career path. So I just left. And it was quite interesting in how I ended up in HR because it was not a career I'd ever thought about or done any research on. And HR people weren't really around in the police service at that time. HR was something that was done by an inspector. Oh, right. It was called the personnel inspector, would you believe? <laughs> That's going back. <laughs> yeah, and they probably didn't have any HR background, so it was very different. But I'd left, uh, you know, it was 2000, I was living in London, I had a massive mortgage on a flat that I probably couldn't afford, uh, and I spent about six weeks sitting around doing nothing, and then the realisation hit of, oh my God, I can't pay my mortgage, I've got no <laughs> savings, what the hell do I do? So I picked myself up, I walked into a recruitment agency in Watford, which is where I was living at the time, and said, hello, I'm Gareth, I need a job. And they were like, okay, what have you been doing for the last 12, 15 years? So we talked through some of the stuff that I've been doing, and I landed up with a temporary job the next day, working at a company called Cable and Wireless, which is in telecoms, helping out on a recruitment project. And that's where my HR career really began. And I ended up working with them for about six months, supporting a very big, large-scale recruitment project. And within a few weeks, of course, the, the HR manager that I was working with worked out that, hmm, you're a bit more mature. You're not obviously a typical HR administrator. We went and had a cup of tea. We talked about some of the work that I'd been doing. She then redeployed me into doing actually the interviewing. So I came into the world then of competency-based interviewing, working with candidates and managers and I thoroughly enjoyed recruitment and they offered me a role and I stayed and that was my HR career. Oh, fantastic so how long were you in that role for? I was with them for just over eight months and then as through that actually I got some quite lucky breaks so one of the agencies that we're working we were working with supplying candidates had been working with an American company that was setting up in the UK as a startup so they'd been established in America 
won some work in the UK, wanted to set up a UK entity, uh, and I was employee number four. Oh, wow. Uh, and I had this kind of dilemma, I guess you'd call it, where I'd got the prospect of staying with a big tried and tested household name, which was kind of the safe world with cable and wireless, or do I take the risky one of go and learn in a startup business? And I thought, well, I've spent most of my working career at this point in the public sector, don't really understand anything about private business businesses. You know what? The startup company could be a good, good place to learn. So I took the more risky role and never looked back. Fantastic. One of the advantages that I had in that penny was that I learned cash flow forecasting and profit from day one because I sat there and I, I reported into the finance director. Every day we sat down and we were looking at, right, what's in the bank account? What business do we think we're going to win? What was our sales director telling us we were going to win? And we worked out kind of a red, amber, green phasing of, right, okay, we now need to go and hire somebody to do that job. We greenlighted the recruitment. We hired them and we grew very organically over the next two years. Mm. And for me, I think what that did was enable me to really understand the commercial side of HR that's vital. You know, if employees are your number one asset and they're also your greatest cost, if you can't understand the language of a finance director, your credibility as a senior HR professional is going to be somewhat tarnished. Because Absolutely. if you want to get some money out of them to spend on something, but you can't demonstrate the cost on and the, of doing it and the return on the investment, they're not going to want to entertain a conversation with you. Whereas if you can put things in a very clear business case that says, right, okay, for example, our current staff turnover in this team is costing us X. If we increase our salaries, our retention rate will improve by 40%. The knock-on effect of that is cost negative within three months. It's a no-brainer. Exactly. And that bit I really enjoy is that kind of mixture between understanding business, how to craft a business case and, and win over a very cynical chief financial officer who doesn't want to spend any money. So whilst you were there, uh, did you start to move more into the HR world? Did you did you take any HR qualifications? I did. So the startup company were awesome. And, and I'd actually turned the job down twice and said, look, you know, what I think you need is an experienced HR professional that can help you grow, who knows all of this stuff. And they were like, well, actually, no, what we're looking for is somebody who can turn their hand to a number of things, but will also be prepared to sponsor you through UCIPD. So what we agreed was a, you know, compressed hours contract where I worked four days a week. And then on the, the, the middle day, I did my CIPD over the next two years. And what was really good about it is the things that I learned, I was able to put into practice and test out because it was a small startup company. And some of the things that I learned, I wouldn't have been able to do in a bigger entity. So actually, it was a really, really productive time for both of us because I learned to grow with the business. They invested in my development and I got my hands busy in all kinds of interesting stuff like learning how to get work permits for Americans, how to negotiate leases for short terms with uh, housing providers when you don't have a credit history in the UK. How do you secure hire cars for people with no credit history? All kinds of stuff like that. And I thoroughly enjoyed having my hands in lots of different pies. And it, it really enabled me to build quite a broad skill base over a very quick period of time. Uh, and actually what, what it then kind of influenced me to do, I guess, was do quite a lot of short-term HR contracts after that. So 
I did some recruitment contracts. I did some HR business partner contracts. But what I wanted to do was get experience of a number of different industries. So very yeah. specifically, I went into the contract world rather than permanent roles with smaller companies so I could grow my experience pretty quickly. And then my business before this one, which was Ibstock PLC, I actually went there to do an eight-week contract and stayed 14 years. <laughs> so there's a bit of a theme here in how I end up uh, with my HR jobs, which is really I just go in to do a short-term gig uh, and end up staying, which is awesome. Well, it's certainly a testament to your abilities, I'm sure. <laughs> I think that's really interesting about working in a small company. I think when people leave uni or school, I think the aspiration is often to work for a big brand, a big corporate, but actually working in a small organization where you have to wear many hats and you have to, you're faced with you know, numerous unexpected challenges really helps you become well-rounded in your, in your skill set and your ability to, to you know, respond on the spot which isn't yeah. so much in a bigger organization, your role's pretty much defined and that's your role. Yeah, I, certainly what I've found working in, working in both big business and small businesses, the key is about the management team that you work with and how you build your credibility with them. And one of the things I learned very early doors was it's okay to say, I'm really not sure about that. Let me do some research and find out and then I'll come back to you because people do expect you Certainly, if you're in a standalone HR role in a business, they expect you to have all of the answers about everything all of the time. Well, nobody has those answers all of the time. It's absolutely reasonable to say, do you know what? I've not come across that before. Let me find out and I'll come back to you. Rather do absolutely. that than give the wrong answer and then absolutely. have to go back to correct it. So what's really interesting with your story is that you have changed career after, you know, being a policeman through to now being essentially the HR director here in the in, in, in the UK for, for wellbeing software. For those people out there that are interested in HR, they're interested in a career change, what advice would you give them? You've got to be interested in people, but you've also got to be quite robust because what what we often get involved with are people in difficult situations you know when you're advising a manager and you're supporting somebody through a performance management process okay the textbook tells you what the process is and hr is very good about you know we create policies we have handbooks we have lots and lots of bureaucracy what they don't actually tell you is how to apply that in practice because the unknown in any of those situations is how that individual is going to react and respond to the situation that you're putting them into uh, and the thing that i mean i always hated the word human resource no i'm a human being and i think the most important thing for people to consider is this is a, a role about people and yeah, sometimes you're in really difficult and very frustrating and annoying situations where people have got themselves into a hole sometimes because they've just been absolutely stupid. <laughs> and how do you navigate that? The number one thing is remember that they're a human being. They've got families, they've got loved ones, they've got aspirations, they've got financial commitments. And, and the decisions that you support and make are life-changing decisions whether that's at the recruitment side where you know you have the wonder of offering somebody a role that they really want to do and you've seen the benefits they'll bring to the organization and that stuff is just like manna from heaven it's pure oxygen 
there's nothing more satisfying than do, offering somebody a great job and seeing them succeed. And conversely, there's nothing more disappointing is the word I will use than terminating somebody's employment because they've just done something really stupid that they shouldn't have done. Um, but actually, I think the bit that we where we do an experience and maturity enables you to do this is really to help some, certainly a manager understand that sacking somebody isn't always the right answer. It's about making sure that the punishment fits the crime and making sure that you've considered the impact on everybody in that situation. Yeah, you know, if you've had a team of high performers where somebody is really underperforming, they won't have any sympathy for any manager that doesn't deal with that. You know, the quickest way to demotivate a high performing team is not deal with a poor performer. And I'm a great believer that, you know, outcomes should never be a surprise to the individual because they, if they know the rules, they're very clear on your expectations as a business and they're very clear as your expectations as a manager on what you're expecting them to perform, where would be the issue? There shouldn't be any issue at all. And a lot of managers, certainly in the UK, are very reluctant to challenge poor performers. Uh, and one of the things that infuriates me is the whole world of HR career and certainly learning and development. We create this whole training package around having difficult conversations. Why do we do that? It astounds me, Penny. Why do we do that? Because having a conversation with your employee about their performance and whether it's great or lacking should not be difficult. You know, by tacking this word difficult conversations, automatically we're creating fear in managers and employees of what's going to happen to them rather than actually make this normal. Having a conversation about performance is a fundamental and everyday part of every manager's role. It shouldn't be difficult. I completely agree. And it's quite amusing. I actually do deliver training on difficult conversations but it's about helping people overcome this strange fear of giving somebody negative feedback and and actually when you look at it and go if you were doing something wrong wouldn't you want someone to tell you and help you correct it the answer is always yes so why there's a fear around it yeah uh, well knows? i think it's i think again it's you know as a profession we create bureaucracy we fill managers with fear we talk about Oh, you know, God, the Equality Act, employment tribunals, all of these things. Yes, they are outcomes that could result from a situation that you're managing. However, if you deal with it early and you nip it in the bud and you give some good coaching and support, why should you ever end up in a tribunal? And you Absolutely. should. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, most people, if you if you think about people who've done something wrong in an organization, most people will have understood that they should have got fired for something that's pretty serious. And therefore, why did you do it in the first place? You know, exactly. there are actions and consequences that the, cho the choice you made when you broke the rules, you knew there was a possibility you were gonna get fired. Well, your choice, bad choice, guess what? Mm. Unfortunately, you're leaving us. Really <laughs> sorry about that, but actually, this is a situation that you created by your own choices. For sure. So back to career changes. Mm. Would you, what qualifications would you recommend someone takes if they were to transition into an HR role? It's really hard to, to put it into academic qualifications because, you know, as a profession, again, we kind of look after our own and we're a bit obsessed with you must have a CIPD 
level five or level seven to get into the job. But do you really, if you've managed teams of people for 20 years, yes, the qualification will help you understand the legal framework. It'll help you understand some of the underpinning theories and processes and situations that you will encounter. It's not a bad thing to have, but it's not a vital to have. For me, certainly, I think the primary thing that makes a good HR person is practical experience of managing people in situations. Whether you've gained that as a working mum or you've worked in McDonald's, you've taken flack from customers throwing things at you at three o'clock in the morning because they're drunk. All of that stuff is good grounding for a career in HR. Psychology is definitely something to be interested in because at the end of the day, it's a profession involved in people. But there's just as much negativity around the psychology piece as there, there wasn't. So again, when I came into the profession, we were obsessed with personality testing and OPQs and 16PFs and Myers-Briggs and, and Belbins. I don't think I've ever worked in a team where somebody sat down at the beginning and said, right, Penny, uh, we need you to join this team because you're a, a resource investigator, for example, or a plan. It's never happened. You know, those tools can be useful in helping to understand how different people react in different situations. And they can be very useful in helping you understand how you adapt the way that you communicate and relate to people to get the best out of them. But they're not absolutes. Certainly, uh, again, as, as time in the career has progressed, you know, we've become much more aware of things like neurodiverse personalities. Uh, and certainly in the world of software development, you know, you will find people who are quite possibly autistic or have Asperger's syndrome or are very logical uh, scientifically minded and, and very practical in the A plus B can only equal C. If you understand that thought process and those personality traits, it helps you manage them a lot more effectively. Uh, and that's not necessarily something you'll learn by doing a CIPD qualification. You'll learn some awareness of those kind of things, but it won't teach you how to apply them in practice. One of the things I absolutely instill in my HR team is understand the basics of the legislation. So there are only five fair reasons in the United Kingdom which are written down in law and which you can dismiss somebody. You need to know them because a manager is going to ask you a question and an employment judge may ask you that question. If you understand the legislation and how to unpick it and translate to the situation you're going to deal with, it will help you ensure that you deal with the right thing in the right way and get the right outcome. And it's actually really simple. That's great advice. Thank you so much. So finally, what's next for you in your career? Oh, that's a good question. I'm at the, obviously towards the later stages of my HR career now, or actually my career. You know, I'm 56 years old and I'm quite happy saying that. Do I want to be doing this when I'm 65? Never say never. I've always said that while I'm engaged in the role that I'm doing with the organisation, that I'm hugely passionate about what we do and what we're doing to bring a wider purpose to the world. While that keeps me busy and interested and engaged, I'll keep coming to work. But your energy levels drop, your, certainly your memory starts dropping away as you get older. I live and die by to-do lists now and ticking things off. But I also think there's a part where 
if I don't step out and go, right, you know, I've had a great career now, it's time to hand over to somebody else, then I'm becoming a career blocker for other people progressing their own careers. So very much as I practice what I preach, if you like, I, I absolutely think, think the fundamental role of any manager is to identify and develop their successor so that the business has got people who can step in when you're ready to step out, whatever that may be, whether I win the lottery tonight and don't come back tomorrow or I actually just go, you know what, thanks very much. I've had a great career. I'm off now. I'm going to just chill out. And what I probably expect I'll do is I will probably do some coaching and mentoring to keep my brain active. And I certainly will stay around the world of HR, but I certainly won't be working full time when I'm 60 off, that's for sure. No, no nine to five. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure hearing about your career, Gareth. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another career story from the field. If you enjoyed this conversation, please follow or subscribe. Thanks for listening.